turn to the book of Malachi, if you have that. If you have your Bible with you, the book of Malachi. Turn to Matthew and go back one book into the Old Testament and you're there. Turn to Matthew and flip straight back and you'll find the book of Malachi. Chapter 1, verse 6 is where we will begin. And I want us to look at the message of this prophet today. And if I had a message today, I want to talk today about how passion fades. How does passion fade? So far we've talked about what does worship do. We've talked about what does Pentecost mean. And today I want us to answer the question, how does passion fade in our walk with God and what do we do to keep it from fading, most importantly today? Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? May God bless the reading of his word and his people said. And so begins the book of Malachi. This series of questions and answers to the Lord. The Lord makes a statement and the people say, Lord, we don't have any clue what you're talking about. How have we done what you are accusing us of having done? And then God explains what his issue is with them. And that's how the book flows, chapter after chapter after chapter. Malachi is an interesting book. If you're honest, most Christians only know one thing about the book of Malachi. And that is there are a few verses in there about paying your tithes, right? Yeah. Most people know that that's in Malachi somewhere. It's in chapter 3 if you're looking. Yeah. Chapter 3. We'll get there. Malachi is an interesting book, but... Paying your tithes is not the main point of the book of Malachi. It's not the heart of his message. It's not the thrust. In fact, that is a side issue for Malachi. The big issue is having a heart that is fully devoted and in love with God. That's the big issue for Malachi. The big issue for Malachi is the big issue of the entire Old Testament. That we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. That is the heart's cry. That's what God is looking for from his people. In every generation, in both Old and New Testament, God is looking for people who are fully devoted to him. Amen? Amen. All three of you. Yes, thank you. <coughs> Malachi's congregation was a lot like many Christian churches today. There was a small, loyal remnant who loved God passionately like I'm describing they tried hard to honor him with their lives. But many of the believers to whom Malachi was preaching had lost their passion for God. They had lost their zeal. They lost their first love fire. They had grown lukewarm and disillusioned in their walk with God. It didn't seem like living for God was paying off. They felt like the Christian life was not as advertised. They had heard preachers make great claims of what life would be like if you gave your heart to Jesus. And they had given their heart to the Lord as best they understood that in an Old Testament way. They were trying to live for God and check the boxes and do what God wanted them to do, but they didn't feel very blessed. They didn't see the evidence around them that God was loving them or showing them kindness or blessing them or giving them His favor. They just didn't see it. Say they didn't see it. Maybe you feel like the people that Malachi is preaching to today. Maybe you are one of those Christians who could say, Pastor, my Christian life has not looked like I thought it would look. Many promises that I felt like were being made to me don't seem to really be 
happening in my life the way I wish they were? Where are these things? Where are the answers to prayer? Where is the victory in Jesus? Where's the blessing and favor of God? Where are the miracles? As your disappointment grows greater, your passion becomes less and less if you're not careful and guard against it. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how passionate worship can keep our hearts awake to the reality that God is with us and that God is moving and working in the world around us. But if we're not careful, we can lose sight of that. Today, the prophet gives us warning signs that our passion for God is cooling off and that we're about to lose our grip on the reality that God is with us and for us, that He's near and that He's working in the midst of our lives and in history around us. Well, Pastor, how do you know that you're beginning to lose your grip that you're beginning to lose your passion for the Lord. What does that begin to look like? Well, let's walk through a couple passages in Malachi and see what the symptoms were of their disease. I want you to notice number one. So notice the symptoms. Say the symptoms. We'll notice the problem, and then we'll talk about how Malachi goes about prescribing a cure for that. Number one, they got over their deliverance. This is the first symptom. They got over their deliverance. Say that with me. They got over their deliverance. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. He opens the book by saying, God says to them, I have loved you, says the Lord. God says, oh, how I have loved you. And yet they answer back, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? God, how have you loved us? We don't see any evidence that you've loved us. We came back from exile to a broken down city and we rebuilt it and then we rebuilt this temple, but it's nothing like the temple we used to have. And not everyone made it back, just a handful of us. And it certainly doesn't look anything like you promised us earlier that the glory would be on Israel. We don't see it, God. We don't see any evidence that things are like they ought to be for us. Why should we keep on serving the Lord? That's what they're beginning to say. But God looks at them and says, I have loved you. Oh, how I have loved you. And they say, how have you loved us? We don't see any evidence of your love. And so God answers them and says this to them in verse, in the end of the verse. He says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. And even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. They say, Lord, how have you loved us? We see no evidence of your love. And God says, are you kidding me? I can show you great evidence that I've loved you. They had gotten so disillusioned by their unmet expectations that they couldn't see any evidence of God's love. This is what God pointed them to. God said, do you want to know the proof that I love you? Do you want to see the evidence? Where are your cousins, the Edomites? You see, when God says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, He's not talking about the individuals. God doesn't pick some people to love and some people to hate. Don't get confused. God is using these guys to represent the nations that they represent. And what He's saying is, I have set my love on the people of Israel in a very special way. I've chosen them for my plan and my purpose. And so when they disobeyed me, I rescued them and brought them back because even though they failed me, I had 
haven't given up on them and I still have a plan and a purpose for them. So I rescued them and I redeemed them and I brought them back. He said, the Edomites, the cousins of yours, the descendants of Esau, they don't have a special covenant with me. I made no such promises to them. And they went away just like you went away. But you came back and they're not ever coming back. Do you want to know the evidence that God loves you? Let me give you the real clear evidence that God loves you. You're sitting in this house rather than in a jail cell somewhere. That's how you know God loves you. You want to know how God loves you? Because you're breathing and you're not already dead and in the grave somewhere. Because you are still here on the top side of the ground, breathing God's air, having an opportunity to get your life right with God, and you're not already in a devil's hell facing the judgment of God on your sin. That's how you know that God loves you. And the problem with some of us today is we're so busy looking at our present that we've forgotten the testimony of our past. We have gotten over our deliverance. Say they got over it. That's their problem. They have gotten over what God did for them. You see, just like them, some of us have gotten over our salvation. We're judging God's love by what we're going through right now. If God never did another thing for you, He's already proven that He loves you. If God didn't love you, you'd already be in a devil's hell. And the fact that you're not this morning ought to be enough reason for you to praise Him and for you to honor Him and for you to worship His holy name today. Amen? Amen. Well, this isn't going right in my life. Well, God hasn't done that yet. And so what? So what? Listen to me. You are alive and you are not facing the judgment of God for your sin today. That ought to be enough reason to shout. Amen. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is the one to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are covered. Happy, rejoicing. That ought to be the way we are. Over salvation. Amen. Amen. I don't, I, I don't need a group of people who have to have a new car to shout. Amen. Or who have to have just got another thousand dollars in the bank to shout. God's people can shout because they're saved by grace and their sins are under the blood and their name is written in heaven. That's something to shout about. Glory to God. When the disciples were rejoicing because the demons were subject to them, Jesus said, that's not anything to shout about. Rejoice because your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's reason to rejoice about. I don't ever want to get over my salvation. I don't want to get over Calvary. I don't want to get over what Jesus did for me. I don't ever want to be able to sing about the cross without a tear in my eye. I don't ever want the choir to be able to sing about the greatness of God without it moving me to want to join them in worship. And if, and if you get lukewarm and you lose your passion, it may be because you've gotten over your deliverance. Amen. I want to tell you, if you think you've got it bad, you can go with Randy this weekend up to the Atmore Jail and he can show you a room full of people, any of whom would swap with you in a heartbeat, no matter how bad you think you've got it. You can go with me visiting and I can take you to some places and show you some people that would swap with any of us. Amen? You can get on a plane and go with Chris. There's some people that will swap with us, won't they, Chris? We've got it well, people. The lines have fallen to us in pleasant places. God has been good to us. God has blessed us. And if we don't realize it, it's because we've forgotten what He's already done and gotten stuck on something right now that we think He ought to do different. Oh, have mercy. They had gotten spoiled, hadn't they? 
The proof of God's love for us was forever settled at the cross. And once you anchor your life there, you don't have to live back and forth wondering if God loves you or not. Some of us, it's like picking a daisy. He loves me, He loves me not. The sun is shining, so He loves me. Oh, it's raining, so He loves me not. Things are going well for me. He must love me. Oh, I just hit a rough spot. He loves me not. No, my friend, there is no daisy to be picked. There was just a rose of Sharon that hung on a a cross and every petal says he loves me he loves me he loves me for God commended his love toward us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us Calvary's the proof of the love of God oh how I have loved you they got over their deliverance say they got over it we're in danger whenever we get over the cross we're in danger of losing our passion for God secondly they grew cold in their worship say they grew cold Malachi's preaching to people who are still going through the motions of worship. They're still checking the boxes. They're still showing up at the temple. They're keeping the feasts. They're offering the sacrifices. Well, sort of, they're offering the sacrifices. They're not exactly doing what God says, but they are half-heartedly trying to keep up the appearance of worship anyway. But their hearts have departed from the Lord. They're not really worshiping. They're worshiping outwardly, but their spirit is not there. They're worshiping with their lips, but not with their hearts. Their hearts are far from the Lord. How do you know? Well, you can see it by what they say, number one, and by what they bring, number two. Number one, notice what they were saying. Say what they were saying. Listen to how they talk about worship, about God's house. Chapter 1 verse 7, they were saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. In other words, I hate bringing an offering and putting it on the table of God. I hate having to come and bring a sacrifice. I hate having to bring part of my flock or part of my herd and offer that up unto the Lord. I just It just bothers me to have to do that. I'm so tired of having to come and give an offering like that to the Lord. It is contemptible to me. It just really bothers me. They were complaining about what they were offering to the Lord. Amen. Well, people, Pastor, this is an Old Testament passage. Oh, you're right. People don't complain about their offerings today, do they? All these preachers want is my money. They're always raising money for something. Every time you turn around, there's a special offering for this missionary or that project. And I bet next week he's going to ask for money on that new sound system. Pledge cards will be here during the offering time. Bring your ink pen. Amen. Oh, we're different. We're not any different. (laughs) Church people are church people, even all the way back in the Old Testament, amen? (laughs) This is our breed, this is our tribe, folks. And here they are, and their words give them away. Look at 1.13. They say, oh, what a weariness. Oh, what a weariness. That's how they describe coming to church. Oh, I would never talk about coming to church that way. Sure you would. Mm, I'm tired of going to church. They want me to get up early for life group, sit half the day through church. They don't even offer snacks. Then they want me to go to a small group at somebody's house that night. I don't like going to other people's houses. I just don't like that. It's just weird. They want me to meet people that I don't know. I may not like them. I'm not going. And then Wednesday night, they want me back up there again on Wednesday night. Got to drive all that way after I get off work. I don't want to do that. I just want to go home. Oh, what a weariness, the people in Malachi's day said. What a chore, what a job it is to serve the Lord. So you notice it by what they were saying, right? 
But then you notice it by what they were bringing, what they're giving in the offering, the sacrifices that they actually show up with. Look at chapter 1, verse 8. God says to the people, And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? (laughs) Offer it to your governor then, he says. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord? What is God saying to them? He says, you come and you bring your offering because you think that, God is a, you think that God's a vending machine. You bring your offering and God will bless you. That's how you think it works. That's what God was saying to them. You think that if you bring an offering, the priest will make the sacrifice and then he will offer that before the Lord and then he will come out and he will speak the words of Aaron's blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and grant you peace and you'll go your way and your flocks will prosper and your fields will grow up with grain and everything will be wonderful. And God says, really? Have you seen what you brought to my house? I told you to bring animals without spot or blemish. I told you to bring a whole burnt offering. I told you to bring what was good and right. And you're bringing me the leftovers. You're bringing me the coals. You bring the blind. You you bring a three-eyed sheep to the altar because you don't want him in your pasture. So you're going to give him to God. Yeah. I remember in time when people used to give all kind of stuff to the church. Amen. That they didn't want anymore. Well, if you don't want it at your house, guess what? Give it to the goodwill. Don't bring it to the church. Amen. We'll let you know when we have another garage sale. We want it then. Right, Seth? It's the only time we want it. Because we're not going to keep that. We're going to let somebody else get the three-eyed lamb. God says, look how you're treating me. He says it again in chapter 1, verse 13. You bring the stolen, the lame, the sick. Can you imagine stealing something to put in the offering? I I can't imagine getting much lower than that, right? You're going to go knock off the 7-Eleven and come put it in the offering. You're so stingy, you're not going to bring a lamb to God. You're going to go across the fence line and steal your neighbor's lamb and bring that to God. And you think God's not going to notice that. Wow, these people are crazy. Man alive. That's almost as bad as people coming in and saying that they want to tithe on their gambling earnings. Amen. That wasn't your money, that was somebody else's money. And just because they lost it don't mean you have a right to it. You didn't earn a dime of that. You didn't get any of that money. But you want to come in and say, am I supposed to tithe on my gambling money? No, you ain't supposed to tithe on it. You ain't supposed to have it to start with. Because you're a thief and you stole it from the poor. It's quiet in the hole in this church, ain't it? Yes, Lord. Stay out of the casino. I don't care what band is there. You've got no business there. That's not your crowd. That's not your tribe. That's not your people. We're the people of God. We're different. We're holy. We're marked with oil. We live different. Lord, help me today. You know your passion for God is waning when you start to give God the leftovers of your life. The leftovers. Oh, if I have any money left at the end of the month, I'm going to give it, Pastor. If I wake up early enough, I'll pray. If we don't get in too late tonight, I'll try to read my Bible. Leftovers, leftovers, leftovers. God is tired of leftovers. God don't like leftovers. God wants the first fruits. 
He wants the first and He wants the best. And if you'll bring that to God, God will bless the rest. And I want to tell you, 90% with the blessing of God will go further with 100% that He doesn't have His favor on. Hallelujah. Do you love Him? But they'd grown cold in their worship. Say, grown cold. Number three, they began to break their promises. Say, break their promises. This is when it really gets bad. It's not just about their heart or their attitude in worship. Now it's beginning to carry over into their daily life. You know you are losing your grip on God. You know you're getting lukewarm when you begin to make compromises in your daily life. You begin to back off of commitments that you once made and you were holding to in the house of God. You came to the Lord and you made some promises to the Lord. You told God you'd live for Him. You stood before church and you took a membership vow and you said you would obey certain principles that the church taught and believed in and you agreed to do that. Nobody forced you to do that. You said you would do that. But when you get lukewarm and you start to lose your passion for God, you begin to lose your grip on these commitments and you don't think they matter much anymore. Well, it's just a little thing and it's just a little little bit here and a little bit there. Here a little, there a little. That's what happens to us. Listen to me. They begin to break their promises. In the book of Malachi chapter 2, there are three broken covenants. Flip over to chapter 2 real quick. Three broken covenants. One after the other, after the other, they start breaking their promises. Number one, it started with the priesthood. Say the priesthood. Chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. The covenant of the priesthood was broken. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and the people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord. John Maxwell said, everything rises or falls in leadership. And it's true in the church just as it is anywhere else. Unlike the rest of Israel... The Levites were not given a parcel of land. They could live anywhere, but they were the priestly tribe. And their ju- the Lord was their portion. The focus of their life was not to be in agriculture or government or in the marketplace. Their job was to keep everybody around them centered on the reality of who God was and what He expected of them. They were the pastors of the people. Their job was to focus on God and keep everybody else focused on God. Amen. Hear me, in order to do that, they had to remain centered on God themselves. And so the Lord said, I don't want you locked up with a lot of other engagements. I want you to be free to focus on your responsibility as a priest unto the Lord. The hardest person you'll ever lead is yourself. Amen? When you turn on Christian television, you'll find preachers doing just about everything except preaching. That amazes me. They do everything but preach. You're called to preach, but you have a 30-minute program and 10 minutes of it is preaching and 20 minutes of it is you selling your products, peddling your books and videos. Well, pastor, that's what it takes to stay on. Then get off. Because if God called you to preach and wants you on there, He'll supply enough money for you to stay on there. Just get on there and preach. Preach the Word. God called you to preach, then preach. Amen. Lord, help me. Maybe it's the new sound system. Mm. John Wesley said to his lay preachers when they started out these words you have nothing to do but save souls spend and be spent in this work go always not only to those that want you but to those that want you most observe it is not your business to preach so many times to take care of this or that society but to save as many souls as you can to bring them to repentance and with all your power to build them up in holiness without which they cannot see the Lord 
1760, a little German Methodist woman named Barbara Heck landed in the United States. New York City, there wasn't a Methodist church. Her family attended the Lutheran church nearby. She walked in one day and realized that her family and her neighbors, her Methodist neighbors, were losing their grip on their passion for God. They were sliding back into the world. They were starting to live like everybody else around them. They weren't walking in holiness like they did when they lived in Ireland back across the pond. And so she walked into her house one day and they were playing cards and gambling for money in her living room. She walked over and grabbed the deck of cards and threw them into the fireplace. And she looked over at one man sitting in the room. She looked over... She looked over, let me find his name. His name is Philip M. Berry. Philip M. Berry was, had been a lay preacher in the Methodist movement in Ireland. But when he came to America, he stopped doing that and was just working to make a living. He got lukewarm like everybody around him and everything began to slide. Barbara Heck walked over and put her finger under his nose and she called him and said, Philip, you must preach to us or we shall all go to hell together and God will require our blood at your hands. He said, I don't have a church or a congregation. She said, you've got plenty of a congregation right here. Why don't you start with them? And he stepped up and opened a prayer meeting in their living room in New York City and it became the first Methodist church in New York City and it launched a movement so mighty that it prompted John Wesley to send Methodist missionaries like Coke and Asbury across the ocean to help get the Methodist movement underway in the United States of America. And it started because one person dared to lead himself and said, I will not lose my passion for God and I'll start with my own family. Oh, have mercy. We need some people today who will remember that, who will understand they've got a call from God on their life. There's some of you in this room who have a call on your life. Right now, you are running from God. Oh, you haven't completely run from God. You're still at church. You're still checking the boxes. You're doing just enough to get by to make yourself believe that things are okay, but you know you're not obeying the Lord. You know you're not doing what God has put in your heart to do. You know that God has laid His hand on you, and He has a purpose and a plan for you, but you're busy pursuing everything everything except what God has called you to do. At, listen, friend, that's a foolish move. At best, you'll end up in a fish like Jonah. And at worst, you'll end up in hell for not doing your duty and other people will go because you didn't do your job of calling them to repentance. Lord, have mercy. The covenant of the priesthood was broken. Secondly, the covenant of the fathers was broken. What is that? Not only did the priests make a promise to keep them focused on God, but the people made a promise that they would not intermarry with the nations around them because those nations worshipped false gods. This was not a racial issue. It was a religious issue. God did not forbid the Jews to intermarry with the nations around them because He didn't want the race line to be blurred. He says very specifically in the book of Deuteronomy, because they will bring their gods in with them and you will get led away and become pagans just like those people. So it's not about race, it's about religion. It always bothers me. I have some people that they wouldn't, they'd get all stirred up if their loved one married someone of a different race. But they're fine, they're fine with that redneck boy walking in that don't know the Lord from Adam's house cat dating their daughter. Hmm. Don't marry your children off to people that don't know and love the Lord like you do. Amen. Young people, don't marry somebody who doesn't know and want to follow the Lord like you do. You'll fight for the rest of your life. Don't do it. You'll pray and pray and pray and fight and fight and pray. And by God's grace, they can be one, yes. But I want to tell you, that's a hard way to do it. Not an easy way to do it. And all the people who've done it said, 
Amen. There's some people in the room who've done that. They know. Listen to them. They're telling you today the covenant of the fathers was broken. Chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. Here they are. Verse 11, Judah has dealt treacherously. An abomination has been committed in Israel. Here he is. Why? Because they've married the daughter of a foreign god, verse 11 says. It should come as no surprise when the priest backslid, the people weren't far behind them. The priest broke the covenant of Levi, and then the people broke the covenant of their fathers. Jesus taught us that we're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We're holding back the decay in the world around us. Paul urged the congregations of his day not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with a devil? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you and be a father to you. Hmm, we don't preach that anymore. It's still in the book. It's still the standard of God. When you read the polls today done in America, the behavior of so-called Christians looks just like the world around us. We want the same things the world wants. Instead of an all-consuming passion for Christ, we chase after money and power and position, just like the world. We're eaten up with materialism. We just call it prosperity to make it sound spiritual. We talk like the world. We gossip and backbite. We get angry and blow our stack. Some of us could cuss a blue streak that would impress a sailor. We dress like the world. Oh, Lord, help me. We saw the ditch of legalism on one side of the road, so we yanked the wheel and landed in the other ditch of license. We forget that the Bible still says, in like manner, women should adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, which is proper for women professing godliness. Oh, that's old-fashioned. I want to be as old-fashioned as the Bible is. I want to be as old-fashioned as holiness is. Hear me today. The Word of God says this. Lord, help us. Pastor, do you believe that? Yes, I do. I do. I believe we've gone way over the line in the other direction, and I believe we need to bring it back. My God, we're holiness people. We're church of God people. If you don't believe I'm preaching what our beliefs are, I'll hand you a little purple book, and you can read them for yourselves. There's still a whole section in there about the fact that we ought to dress to an appropriate standard because we're the people of God. Hallelujah. Mm. thank God for beautiful women but if you're a beautiful woman I want to tell you something that beauty is for your husband the Bible says so and he ought to be the one who's looking at that he ought to be the one who's enjoying that and who's seeing that that's not for you to parade to everybody else Proverbs 4 says why should your waters flow in the street drink water from your own fountain oh it's quiet in the holiness church today but I'm telling you it doesn't matter this is the word of God it's the truth holiness It involves the way we dress. We don't take our standards from the world. We take our standards from the Word of God. We don't step in front of a mirror and say, I wonder if this will turn somebody's head. We step in front of a mirror and say, do I represent Jesus well? Do I look like a person who fears God? Do I look like someone in whom the Holy Ghost dwells? Lord, help us. Now we even drink like the world in the church. Mm. We even drink like the world in the church. Oh, it's just a little sip here, there. It's just a, just a glass of wine with a meal. I don't know what bothers me more, the fact that you believe that lie or the fact that it doesn't matter to you that you stood before the church and made a promise that you would abstain from that when you joined the church of God. I don't know what's more sinful, Randy, a liar or a drunk, right? I mean, we're just splitting hairs at this point, right? Right? 
Mm. It's all right. You can look down. You don't have to look at me. I can preach the top of your head. (laughs) Everything the world schedules now comes before the house of God for us. Listen to me. God gets the leftovers. Our kids are more devoted. Oh, they need to be devoted. They need to be devoted to their team. They need to be committed to their team. I wish they were as committed to the Lord as they were committed to their team. I wish their family was as committed to the church as they are to that team they're on. Because that team will come and go. But the church of God will stand forever. Amen? Amen. If something's got to give and something's got to move, why don't we let the world move for the church instead of the church doing all the moving? Mm. Lord help us broken covenant they broke the covenant of their fathers they intermingled with the nations around them they became just like the world I want to tell you if you have to become just like the world to win the world you didn't win the world the world won you Lord help us number three the covenant of marriage was broken chapter 2 verse 13 God says the second big issue I have with the people is this you've forsaken the wife of your youth You have departed. You have broken your covenant. You have traded her in. You made promises when you were young and then you traded her in for a younger, prettier model whenever you got a little bit older. And God says, I don't like that. I don't play that. Verse 13, they say in chapter 2, we come to the Lord's altar and we cry tears and we weep and we say, does the Lord not regard our offering anymore? Lord, are you not going to accept our offering? And God says, it doesn't have anything to do with your offering. It's not the tears on the altar. It's not that you didn't put enough money in the offering plate. God says, it's this, you didn't keep your promise. You made a promise to the wife of your youth. Verse 14, why does the Lord do this? Because he's been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. He didn't, did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord. Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Once the preacher gets focused on something other than being God's messenger, once the people allow the influence of the world to come flooding into the church, everything is up for grabs. In Malachi's day, Rabbi Hillel taught that divorce was allowable for any reason. If the man found anything about his wife he didn't like, he could divorce her. If she burned the bacon, he could divorce her. If she didn't part her hair right, he could divorce her. Amen. Sounds just like today's no-fault divorce policy, doesn't it? You see, nothing's changed, has it? In fact, all the man had to do was in the presence of a witness look at his wife three times and say, I hate you. And if he said that three times, she was divorced. He would write her a certificate of divorcement, give it to her, and she was free to go, and he was free to go, and trade her in for a newer, shinier model. Yeah, it is. Yes. And that's the way they lived. That that was was the policy of the day. And the the preacher was signing off on this. It's okay to do this. It's legal. As long as it's legal, the Lord doesn't care about it. How can anybody say that? I don't know, but Paula White preaches the same thing. And some of you think she's the best thing since sliced bread because she supports Donald Trump. (gasps) Grab your dentures. She has preached and promoted the same doctrine and said that as long as it is legal, it is okay in the eyes of the Lord. If you're legally divorced, it's okay for you to marry somebody else. Don't worry about the details of it. 
She's preached that. In fact, she preached it, and there's Church of God pastor and his wife over in Eastern Europe who did exactly that and divorced and, and remarried somebody else just because Paula White said that they could and it'd be okay with the Lord. And in six months, he fell dead. Because obviously, Paula and Jesus ain't on the same page about this issue. Listen to me. Listen to me. Is there grace? Of course there's grace. Is God against divorced people? No, God's not against divorced people. But He's very clear. He doesn't say, I hate divorced people. He said, I hate divorce. Why? Anybody who's ever been through one can testify and tell you why God hates it. Because it hurts and it's painful and it causes great violence and it causes division and it leaves a mess and you glue two pieces of paper together and you separate them. You don't get two pieces of paper you get fragments and you have to rebuild and let God heal and start over. It's not pretty. It's not as advertised. It's not what people tell you that it's like who are urging you to jump out of the window and do that. Listen, we don't preach about divorce to condemn anyone who's experienced a divorce. We preach about it to be honest that God hates it, but we know that God loves people who've been through it. Listen, it's a violent act. That's what verse 16 says. He who commits divorce covers his garment in violence. If you've ever been through one, you know how violent and rending and tearing apart a family's divorce is. If your family's ever experienced that, you know that it's true. We have a divorce care ministry at our church to help people who've experienced the pain and violence of that recover from it because it is such a horrible thing to have to go through. I'm not fussing at anybody who's been through a divorce. I'm not throwing stones at anyone who's been here. What I'm pointing out is this. This is a symptom of a bigger problem. It's a symptom of a larger issue. The issue today for me is not whether you've been through a divorce or not. The issue is this. Do you believe that your walk with God ought to make you the kind of man or woman who keeps their promises? Does what we do here matter out there? Does what happens at this altar affect the way we treat other people? Because when you read through Malachi, it's not just about divorce. It's about every other relationship too. He says, I'll be a swift witness against, he says, against sorcerers, people who try to manipulate God. I'll be a swift witness against adulterers, people who manipulate their spouse. Against perjurers, people who lie to manipulate their neighbor. Against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans and those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. God says, the way you treat people that are weaker than you, that'll get my attention. Why? Because our religion ought to affect the way we treat people. Otherwise, it isn't worth anything. In fact, it's worth so little that in chapter 1, verse 10, God says, I wish somebody would just shut the doors on my house. I mean, if you're going to come in and, and, and do what you're doing and go out and live like you live, God says, somebody just padlock the door, do us all a favor, let's quit playing. God says, unlock the door and come back when you really want to live for me. Wow. That's what he says. What are the signs that we're losing our passion with God? Notice them there. <laughs> We begin to break our covenants. We begin to go back on our commitments. We begin to violate the promises that we made. Our promises in marriage. Our promises to the Lord. Our promises to serve and obey Him. Our promises about what we would and would not do. What we will and will not allow in our lives. Wow. A common thread. People who break their covenants, crawfish on their commitments, and go back on their promises because they have no fear of the Lord. Even in the church today, people do not fear the Lord. Well, what's the answer before I let you go today? Malachi is very clear. There is only one answer. The personal coming of the Lord. God has to show up in order to fix this. God's presence has to arrive in order for anything to be different. 
In order for anything to change, this is what has to happen. They have to have a meeting with God. God has to arrive on the scene. They have to have an encounter with Him. God's got to show up in person. Behold, I am coming, he says in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Behold, I'm coming. In the next two chapters, Malachi describes what that's going to look like. He points ahead to the first coming of Jesus, chapter 3. To the second coming of Jesus, chapter 4. And he describes what that coming is going to be like. In both cases, he's coming with fire. That's amazing to me. That's interesting to me. He's coming in fire. Malachi 3, verses 2 to 4. Who can endure the day of His coming? Oh, the Lord's coming. They're like, oh, yay, the Lord's coming. And Malachi says, oh, it's not going to be as glorious as you think it is. Who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when God finally appears and shows up? For He is like a refiner's fire. He is like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. He will purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offer offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. This is what revival looks like. It may lead to shouting and dancing, but it doesn't start from shouting and dancing. It starts with contrition and confession. It starts with remorse and repentance. It starts with purification and cleansing. It starts at the altar of repentance. We've got a lot of false fire in the church today. Say, Pastor, how do you know it's false? It's false because it don't burn anything up. Real fire will burn some stuff. Amen. If you have real fire, it'll burn something up. You've been to Walmart lately and they got those little wickless candles and they look real and they look all pretty. They got the little switch on the bottom, but you you can grab the flame and you can rub your hand through it. It won't burn anything. It's fake fire. Yeah. Double A batteries. Don't need any matches. Don't need a grill lighter. Fake fire. There's a lot of churches that have traded the fire of God for some fake fire. Amen. Yeah. They got a shiny-shoed preacher and a good choir, and they got some AA batteries, and they plug it in every Sunday morning, and they shout, and they dance, and they carry on, and they walk out, and they're not any different than when they came in, and they live just like the world. Why? Because fake fire won't burn anything up. But you know you've been around the real fire of God when it changes some things in your life. The real fire of God will burn the sin out of your life. The real fire of God will purify you. The real fire of God will change your attitude. The real fire of God will change the words of your mouth. The real fire of God will change the way you treat other people. The real fire of God will purge and renew and refine and make you more like His Son. The real fire of God will burn out the dross and refine the silver. The real fire of God will cleanse and purify. Say, real fire. Amen. People speak in tongues, but they still lie. The Holy Ghost is not in control of that tongue. Like Saul, who prophesied all night and got up and chased David the next day and tried to kill him. They're stirred, but they're not changed. They got double-A batteries and fake fire. You need the fire of God. It'll change your life. It'll make you different. It'll make you love everybody. Amen. Lord, help us. And it's either the fire of purification... Or it is the fire of punishment. Because in chapter 4, he also talks about coming in fire. He says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud and all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day is coming that shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave neither root nor branch. Wow. What's the point of chapter 4? Jesus is coming back. The Lord is coming back at the end of time. And when He comes, He's coming in judgment. When He comes, He's coming to Bring vengeance on those who do not serve Him and love Him. 
Malachi 3 is a reference to the first coming. This sounds like the second coming. Church, Jesus is coming again. We better stop playing games with God. It's time to be ready for the coming of the Lord. 1 Peter 4, 17, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what shall the end be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wow. We can either allow the cleansing fire of the Holy Ghost to purify us now, or we can face the fire of God's judgment with the rest of the world. But the Bible is still clear. We must pursue holiness without which no man will see the Lord. Hmm. Chapter 3, verse 18, when he comes again, he says, then you will know. Then you will discern and be between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. What is he saying? The second coming will show you once and for all that it really does pay to live for God. Does it pay to live for God? Yes. But you've got to judge it by the cross in the past and heaven in the future. You can't judge it by what you're going through right now. Do you hear me? But on that final day, when Jesus comes again and separates the sheep from the goats, the wicked from the righteous, then you will know and prove that it has paid to serve and follow Jesus. Yeah. Stand with me all over the Lord's house today. I'm aware of the time. (laughs) Chapter 3, God has one command to them. This is the remedy for them. The The step they're supposed to take is simple. I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Yet from the days of your fathers, you've gone away from my ordinances and not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. Return to me. That's the call of God. That's the invitation. Return to God. If you're here today and you feel like your passion for God has faded, what's the answer? Return. Come back. It sounds like what Jesus told the Ephesian church in Revelation 2, doesn't it? Remember from which you have fallen. Repent and do the first works over. Remember. Realize how far you've drifted from the Lord. Repent. Turn around. Change it. Throw the brakes on now. Don't go any further down the road of drifting away from God. You don't drift anywhere good. You never drift anywhere good. You always end up in a mess when you drift. Don't drift. Be very deliberate about your walk with God. Turn around and come to Him. Change directions in your life. Return to the former patterns and actions you had when you were fully devoted to the Lord Jesus. Get up early. Spend time with Him. Show up to the worship service. Sing every song. Give in every offering. Sign up and serve because you love Him, because He's been good to you, and because you belong to Him. Renew your passionate walk with Him. Lord, help us today. Has there ever been a time in your Christian experience when you were more passionate for Christ, more deeply committed, more fully devoted to Him than you are right now? A time when you walked more closely to Him, enjoyed greater intimacy with Him, desired more more strongly to please Him than you do this morning? Are you keeping your promises to God? Are you keeping the commitments that you made to the church when you joined the church? Are you keeping your promises to your wife and your children, to your neighbors and your co-workers? Are you a man or woman of integrity? Do you keep your promises? If we aren't people of integrity, God's not really impressed by anything we do between 10.30 and 12 on Sunday. He really isn't. You hear me? 
Does your life bear the marks of one who's following hard after God? Or do your values and your practices look more like the world than they do the Jesus described in the New Testament? Have you gotten over your salvation? Have you forgotten the pit that He dug you out of? Does the message of Calvary no longer stir your heart? Have you gotten over it? God forgive us if we ever get over the cross. God gave His best so that we could belong to Him. So that our sins could be forgiven. So that our hearts could be transformed. So that we could be set free from the bondage of our sin. So that we wouldn't have to live as slaves to our flesh or our desires or our past. Oh, what a price He paid for us to be the people of God. What does He desire? Return to Him. Surrender your life fully. Be completely devoted to Him 100%. Give it all to Jesus today. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, I invite you to do that. Jesus hung between heaven and earth on Calvary and died for your sins so that you could be forgiven and made right with God by trusting Him and asking Him to save you. Believing that His death and resurrection paid the price of your sin and that if you'll trust Jesus, God will forgive you for His sake. Come and do that today. Maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor, I name the name of Jesus, but if I'm honest with you, I sound just like the congregation Malachi was preaching to in that book this morning. My passion with God is growing cold. I've gotten over my deliverance. The reality of what God's done for me in the past doesn't seem to be enough to motivate me to worship anymore. I complain about what I have to do for the Lord. I complain about what I give, how I serve. I complain about services. If they go a little long, I complain about worship. If we stand a little too much, I find my heart going, oh, what a weariness, just like those people did. Oh, God, help us. Oh, God, help us. Maybe you're here and you say, Pastor, if I'm honest, my values look more like the world than like the kingdom of God. And that's got to change for me today. Return. Return. How long has it been since you opened God's Word at home? How long has it been since you spent time in His presence? Some of us are here, and if we're honest, we picked up our Bible this Sunday morning from the same spot we retrieved it last Sunday morning to come to church. Listen, guys, that's not the heart of someone who's passionately in love and can't wait to hear the voice of their lover speaking to them in His Word. That doesn't describe the kind of white-hot relationship that, that Jesus wants and deserves and desires from us. Where are you today? Has your passion faded? And if so, what are you going to do about it? Return to the Lord. It starts by recognizing it and repenting of it. And then leaving this place and beginning to do like you used to do when you first fell in love with the Lord. Where are you? Every head bowed. Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, I've done my best to preach what you laid on my heart for us this week. Lord, I know this is a hard passage. I know it's a, a, a stiff message. But Father, I pray today that God, you would take your word and you would wake up our hearts and you would help us to examine our lives in light of your word and to answer the difficult question. What is our passion level? Where are we? Are we white hot? Are we totally devoted? Are we fully committed to you? Or are we giving you the leftovers of our lives? Are we just going through the motions and checking the boxes? 
Lord Jesus, I pray today for anyone here today who needs to say, Lord, revive me again. Lord, renew your work in my life. Come and meet me here today. God, I repent. I see it. I don't want it to be like this anymore. I want to be fully devoted to you. Lord, come and meet me here this morning in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray that you draw them to this altar and into your presence in Jesus' name. Every head bowed for a moment. If you're here today, and you say, Pastor, you've preached about me this morning. My life is not fully devoted. I would call myself a Christian today. I'm in the Lord's house. I'm here pretty often. But if I were honest, I don't have the kind of passionate walk with God that you've described, but I want it. And I desire to come back and return to the Lord today. If you're here and you say, Pastor, that's me. Would you pray for me today? I want you to slip up your hand real quick. Just honest enough with God. Yeah. 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 I want to invite you today to take a next big step. Come and find a place to kneel at these steps or sit on this front row. Find a place to get alone with God for a moment and ask the Lord to meet you here. God will meet you here. If you will return to me, He promises I will return to you. Return to me and I will return to you. Seek me and you will find me. That's the promise of the Bible. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. God is guaranteed today that He will meet you if you will come. He has promised that He will meet you if you will come. I challenge you to come. I invite you to come. Come and find a place of prayer. Come and let us pray with you for a moment this morning. Come and renew your walk with the Lord. Come and renew that today. Are you here? Wait in a moment, giving you a chance to come. Come on. Come on. Come on. Take a moment and repent. Take a moment and come before the Lord. Say, Jesus, I want it back. I want the walk with you to be intimate. I want it to be close. I want my passion for you to be like it used to be. I want a full tank today. I want my heart to be full, Lord Jesus. I want to be fully yours. I'm coming today. Repenting, asking you to fix me. Asking you to heal me. Lord, come and ignite my heart again. Come and fill my heart again, Lord. Come and make my heart combustible. Lord, come and fill me with your spirit. Come and give me back, Lord, the passionate walk that I used to have with you. Fully devoted. Holding nothing back. How's your walk? How's your walk? How's your passion? This is between you and the Lord. Between you and Him. He wants your heart to be fully His. And your heart won't ever be fully satisfied until it is. Do you hear me? He will satisfy you, but you've got to surrender your heart. All of it. This morning as we pray, we're going to pray with those who've come. The altar's open. Chad's going to lead us in song. One more time. Father, draw the hearts of people this morning. Let us do real business in the presence of the Lord. Meet us. Change us. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Everybody said, worship with Pastor Chad.